Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. If you haven't heard, I am here to share with you. The Wine and Chisme podcast has launched the very first Latina-owned wine brand directory ever. Just go to the wineandchismepodcast.com, then go to Wine Brand Directory. There you will be greeted by me. But more importantly, you will be able to choose a winery first by region, then by county. And the wineries in that area will not only be listed, but you can connect directly to them from this site. It couldn't be easier than that, right? Use this directory to plan your own wine adventure or learn about some of these Latine vintners or share it with a friend and have them buy some Latine wine as well. You guys, this is the first time that something like this has ever been available. So go use it and support our community. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Uh, hola, mi gente. I'm really excited because I have a couple of beautiful bottles of wine sitting in front of me. And today I have Enrique Lopez from Encanto Wines, Encanto Vineyards with me. So hola, Enrique. How are you today? How you doing, Jessica? I'm here. I'm going to be doing better once we drink this wine and once you, t- you talk me through this wine. But before we do that, let me kind of read your bio and then we'll go into the wine and go into the questions and go into the chisme of your wine. Enrique Lopez, founder and proprietor of Encanto Vineyards, was born in a small pueblo of El Espíritu, Michoacán, Mexico in 1961. As a child, Enrique grew up learning his ancestral craft of cultivating agricultural land. He was 11 years old when he first came to America with his family and farmed garlic in the fields of Nevada. That same year, he attended St. Helena Elementary School while staying with his brother Jesus in Napa Valley. Today, Enrique has built his successful vineyard management company, Farming Wine, Farming Wine Grapes for Schaefer Ballantine, Gallo and Dunham, uh, Gallo and Dunham Estate Vineyards. Enrique and his wife, uh, Ligia, have produced several hundred cases of wine a year of their family brand Encanto Vineyards. So I'm so excited. I already poured a glass like an hour ago of each, uh, not a full glass of each, but of each of the wines that you sent, the Pinot Noir and the Cabernet, so we could go over them. So I have the Pinot Noir in front of me first, because obviously you want to start from the lighter wine to the heavier wine when you're tasting wine. So this is a 2016 Pinot Noir from Carneros Valley in Napa Valley. 
I've not tasted it. I've literally been waiting for this time. Enrique, this wine has been sitting here for a couple of weeks. I've not opened it. I've not tasted it. I haven't smelled it, anything, because I was waiting to do this with you. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> Salud. Salud. <laughs> Trying to smell the smells first. A lot of fruit there. Oh, yeah. There's oh, God, this is really smooth. Yes, it is. It is. It does seem as a lot of food forward wine from the uh, Carneros region here in Napa. And it's a very delicate type of grape, you know, influenced by the Bay, by the San Pablo Bay. It's mm -hmm. a very medium body wine, delicate. There's a lot of fruit on it. So it is a nice, nice, nice Pinot Noir. So it is. I'm trying to figure out all of the things that I'm smelling and tasting. I'm tasting something at the very end and I'm trying to figure out what that taste is because I can't figure out, but it's really good. It's not a bad in any way. Um, different. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what that is, but it's really good. This is really smooth. So I did make sure, like I said, to pour myself a small taste. Well, it's more than a regular tasting, but small tasting for me of each of them. So they had time to kind of get that oxygen to it and everything. So Cause that there's been times where, you know, sometimes you pour it and you drink it and then you realize, cause obviously yeah. it changes the longer it's out and everything. Well, after it opens it up with the, with the air, it oxidizes a little bit of, uh, of the main ingredients and it just releases a different type of flavors after a few minutes. So that's mm -hmm. some wines are ready when you pour them, it's nice, ready, but then you need to let them breathe a little bit so they can have their components to get to your nose and to the palate. So yeah. What kind of barrel do you uh, ferment this Pinot Noir in? Well, we use about 35% brand new French oak barrels with the uh, medium toast. The particular type of barrel that we use is from a specific region in France. And we get those so that the toast is medium toast, kind of light medium. So, and we don't use uh, too much oak on it so it's just 30 30 35 percent brand new oak so that's what it is and then the rest of them are used barrels so they're one or two three year barrels that we store those um that wine in to into it so only 35 to 30 percent 30 to 35 percent brand new oak so the french oak is like more neutral right is is that correct yeah well it's different it's different if you use um hungarian wood will be different we use American oak, a totally different. We use French oak, which is pretty much what we chosen to do. And then that's what my style. So we Got like it. it. Oh, God. No, I really like this. You know, I'm not going to lie. Of all of the wines that I've tasted from the wineries that I had, they're just so good. And I tend now I, I realize I tend to be really more drawn to the smaller wineries because there's just something different about when you go to a smaller winery, when you don't, I mean, I will still go to the store and pick up a bottle of wine because there's certain wines that aren't necessarily available in my area that I want to get or that some of the small wineries or just not grown unless you go into a different area and they're available at larger markets or anything. But I just find that, especially within the wines that I've been really kind of focused on the wineries I've been focused on promoting within the Latine community. They're just all so good. I haven't had a bad wine yet at all. Yeah. All the wines here that we have in Napa are pretty good. I mean, there's certain, some faulty wines that are not good, but 
but especially specifically on our small small wineries like us, like the group that we are part of it. And we try to do, I mean, we're, we're quality. We're not doing just massive amounts. When you do a lot of, I mean, a big amount, sometimes you lose quality. So mm-hmm. for us, quality is a priority. So you want to have good product so you can have it for your clientele, for your club members, for people that come to the, our tasting room. So there's must be great wines. So before we go to the other one, I want to ask you some questions because you, like you said, in your bio, you are, you grew up in Michoacan or that's, you know, up until you were 11. One thing that really kind of stood out in your bio for me is you talk about learning your ancestral craft of cultivating agricultural land. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that something that your, your mom and your grandma did? Like, what was that? You know, back in the back in the days, I mean, I grew up in a small community, and there's eight or nine communities there, agricultural communities around on that part of Zamora, so near Zamora. And when I was growing up, we had different type of crops, anywhere from pasture, we call it hanamargo, which is a type of uh, legume for cattle, and we had garbanzo beans, we had strawberries, we had zucchinis the mexican zucchini we had tomatoes onions so we were we were doing on corn of course we were doing everything to cultivate our property which is four hectares from my dad's side and then from my uncle my brother now is another four hectares so we were cultivating all those have two pieces of land which is together were eight hectares and i was learning through the from my get-go when I was able to, when I remember, we're going behind the uh, the plow, I mean, pulled by two horses, and the, 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 my brother directing the, the plow, and then we behind either planting corn, planting uh, garbanzo beans on Hanamargo or the I mean, legume type of thing. And then from there, we were learning about the procedures or all the agricultural things that we saw. For example, one of the things I remember is that when we were planting corn fields, there was another acre up in the hills that didn't have any water. So we we're planting after June 24th. So because of the rain starts back then on June 24th. So we were directing, we were directed by, well, some of the astrological uh, or cultural things. Now, after July, I mean, June 24th, you were able to plant corn up in the hill where we had that one hectare and plant it because we knew there was rain coming. And according to the astrological things that they were used to it after the 24th, that was when we were supposed to plant the corn and don't use any water. We're just plowing and we're doing behind the plow and just putting the seeds, one or two seeds on each step that we were doing. So we were planting every like two or three feet apart. That was back in the days. Now, of course, they do down below where, where there's water. We do, we start in May. In May, because of it, there's water, there's uh, irrigation water. But back in the days, we were planting up in the hills and we were going according to the uh, season and the cultural things that we had. So I learned a lot of agricultural. And then after that, we just immigrated here, which all my brothers came here in the late 60s, 70s. 
Did they here. come as part of the Bracero program or was that being phased uh, out at that time? No, my dad came here in the, the, during the Bracero programs, the Bracero program back in the um, late 50s and then in the 60s, I believe. And then he was, um, he passed away, unfortunately. It wasn't voluntary when someone killed him back in, in 1962. So wow. he was part of the Bracero program. And in 62, that's when that happened. And I was about a year old. I never knew my, my dad. I grew up with my brothers. And then Jesus immigrated to the United States back in 64. He got married here and got six of us are in my mom, the residency. I was the last one of four. Actually, four of us were the last few that were a part of it. And uh, we immigrated here in 72. I stayed here for four months and that's it. Went back to Mexico to go to school. But I learned, I was learning and I was going through also taking care of cattle or horses back then after that and going to school at the same time and then had to go to the university and I couldn't do it no more. So, but, but I was part of the operation there. And, so how long did you stay in the States? Because you obviously you went back to Mexico to go to university, but you went to school in St. Helena. Yes, a couple months. Well. Couple Just months a couple months. Months in elementary school, fifth grade. Yeah, that's it. And then harvest was over. And we came here in September from Nevada mm-hmm. to work for harvest. And September, October. So I was going to school and my brothers were working, all of them. I mean, there's like six of them. And then after harvest ended in first of November, end of October, we drove down to Mexico. They pulled me out of school and they said, fine, I want to go back to Mexico. I don't want to do the type of work you're doing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you went from, you were helping harvest the garlic, right? Picking garlic in Nevada. Then you went from Nevada to St. Helena and you were harvesting grapes there. Is that where, is is that what you're doing? And then after that was over back to Mexico. Mexico. Yes. Wow. So basically you spent like you were only here for a little bit and then you spent your entire pretty much childhood and um, yeah, until you graduated university. Yes. I was coming back every two years or every month, every year for a month. But then that was it. Um, For harvest? No, just like in July. Oh, yeah. Before harvest. You're like, I'm not coming during that time. (laughs) The only time that I have time because uh, school was going to start at the end of august uh, first of september so we have i have things to do there helping my brother who was there and that that was it so when you went back to mexico because were you guys still doing working the land and everything that you yeah, long remember fertilizing irrigating planting tomatoes planting tomatillo green tomatillos everything so we were doing So that really got instilled in you in regards to working the land and how to do it and loving the land, because that's huge part of planting is loving the land, like from basically almost birth. Yes. I was back in Mexico helping my brother who was there, uh, one of my brothers, doing everything that is related to cultivating tomatoes, strawberries, corn, anything that we were planting. So they had two properties. We're planting both. Uh, And then during the... um, the rain season, which is starts in June over there, we're planting corn up in the dry property that we had. This is one acre, one acre hectare. So I was involved with everything. Of course, there was not that I didn't, not my personal desire. Of course, I was like, had to do, because we had to do it. That was part of life over there. And right. 
besides going to school when after school, go get some um, feeding the cattle or the horses and, uh, and continue with your homework and get ready for the next day, going to school in the city until high school. When I finished high school, then I had to go to uh, go to the uh, capital of the state, which where the university was. And that was like two and a half hour by bus or three hour back then. And you did that every day? No, I was every week going, leaving on Sunday afternoon, evening, coming back on either Friday night or Saturday morning to go home. Sometimes wow. it was over the weekend to keep your <laughs> your, your studies uh, together. So mm-hmm. back in the days, yeah. So you actually got your degree in chemical engineering. So yes. why was that important to in to do chemical engineering? Did you know you still wanted to work? Within yeah, a certain but, industry or within the land? You know, when I was in middle school, I liked chemistry. So I, I wanted to do things, reactions, chemical reactions. That's what I was, my attraction was chemistry. So that's the career that I chosen when I was in, uh, in high school, when, uh, preparatoria, preparatory school, we call it preparatoria. So that's when I chosen my, my career and then engineering. So when I finished so I went to school, applied for, for the chemical engineering uh, school, and I had to take a test to get the admission test, which was like about anywhere from 400 to 600 students that wanted to get into that chemical engineering school, and only only about 150 got admitted. So wow. I was one of the uh, few that got admitted, I mean, 150 versus 600. So that was a few, only a few because uh, it's a public school. So you have to pay only a lot, like application at first money and like i don't know maybe 100 bucks that's it per year but you have to pay your housing food and everything that is, is in, in books and everything so that that was part of my brothers supporting me when i was in school my nice. mom, yeah so that was all my brothers took part of of my school necessities they, they were pitching in to to help me going to school so you, were the, you were the youngest Yes, and uh, the only one that wanted to go to school, and the lucky one, I guess, <laughs> to, <laughs> to get uh, to get a degree, and the only one in my family out of 14, 14 I mean, total of us, the fourteen kids, only one that, and I'm that number fourteen. <laughs> the, Four, yeah. Wait, fourteen kids? Yeah, alive. Like, oh my like, gosh! I thought my parent, because my mom is the youngest of ten, yeah, my no. dad is like the middle of twelve, and I thought that was a lot. Yeah. And you're like, no, that's nothing. We're fourteen, <laughs> fourteen <Yeah>. strong. <laughs> actually, actually, there was uh, twenty-one kids, but only fourteen survived. So there was some that that passed away because of no medical attention back then when they were born with little. And then some that they were growing in chicken pox or whatever, they happened and they, yeah, they passed away. So there was 14 of us that were still 13 alive. Wow. Yeah, that's how it, it was back then. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Men. Hola, chicas. The summer we've been waiting for is right around the corner and our friends at Ulta Beauty wanted to share the following hair care must-haves. Starting off with Andrew Fitzsimons Prism Shine Glossy Shampoo, formulated with hydrating coconut oil, derived ingredients, and aloe vera, delivering a glossy glow to dull hair. The moisturizing treatment glides through and makes hair super shiny, leaving it silky smooth from root to tip. Your next summer must-have is Sun Bum's Heat Protector, which lets you say no to heat-damaged hair, decreasing blow-dry time, and helps protect against thermal damage and breakage. 
This two-phase protective formula is lightweight, nourishing, and works quickly to help eliminate frizz and resist humidity, keeping hair healthy and hydrated. This last-minute must-have is new, and our friends at Ulta Beauty are excited to share that Olaplex No. 9 Bomb Protector Nourishing Hair Serum is now available at Ulta Beauty. Protect your hair from daily damage with this weightless leave-in silicone-free hair serum to shield hair from pollution and provide heat protection up to 450 degrees. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Ulta Beauty today and shop in-store or online for all your summer hair care essentials. All right, I have my Cabernet now. Okay. Ready to sip on the Cabernet. And this is the, oops. <laughs> That's what happens on live, on uh, recording sometimes. It's 2015 Cabernet Sauvignon. Is it Usibeli Ranch? Usibeli Ranch, yes. In Rutherford in Napa Valley. So what's yeah. the difference between this valley and the Carneros region in regards to what grapes are grown and how they're grown? And obviously all of that changes. The topography well, can change a lot of things. Well, if you go inland and in Napa Valley, you start here in American Canyon, which is cold. You get the breeze from the bay. It's cold. You don't get you don't get good quality of Cabernets over there on the, um, close to the bay. There's a lot of humidity, influential cold weather from the bay. If you go inland, you go to north of, I would say, Oakville, Oakville, Rutherford, then you get very quality Cabernets. Um, even, nor- even north of Oaknall. So there's 16 regions here. One of the most prominent regions for Cabernet is Rutherford. Rutherford has a, it's in the valley. It has a it's a valley floor, and it's on the west east side where where this ranch is is east of the Napa River. It has a, a very good soil for, for Cabernets. Cabernets of this specific region produces a smooth, not too heavy of tannins. The tannins are great. You don't think it's Cabernet, but it's a very good Cabernet from Rutherford. The uh, soils and the weather. I mean, the weather is warm, warm weather. You get over there the 90s, um, I don't know, a few weeks out of the year, which in Carneros, you hardly ever get to 80 uh, when it's warm in inland. So Rutherford is one of the most uh, famous regions here in subappellations in Napa for Cabernet. One of the smells that I'm getting is hibiscus when I'm smelling it. Very floral to me. Yes. The 15 is a pretty matter of fact, I, I did pour myself a little bit of it. So. All right. Salud. Salud. There's a better one. <laughs> oh, yeah. It kind of has a, I feel like I always get like very deep fruits, but I also it tastes like, um, and I'm not a big soda fan, but it kind of has like a, like a Coca-Cola flavor in there. Finger in it after. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's the dark fruit flavors. And some of the bread are still present there. So it makes it wonderful. So this is the um, 2015 Cabernet Rutherford. Yes. So what's about- the difference between like what kind of, you were saying the differences between the Carneros and the Rutherford area. Is that key in regards to, because obviously we're having a Pinot Noir and a Cabernet, they taste very different. But is that the key in regards to those types of grapes and being able to bring something that has, really good flavor is the region that they're being grown in because oh, yeah. the type like do you, each grape needs to be in a specific kind of region oh yes yes you cannot i mean like i was saying if you grow 
for example, Pinot Noir down in, in, in Rutherford, people are going to, I mean, burgundy style type of grapes, right? There's a mm. Pinot Noir, one of the red ones. And it has to be on a cold weather. Uh, the type of grape is Pinot Noir has a thin skin, very susceptible for breaking the berries when it, when they cluster closest, when the berries are close to each other after the cluster is full. So it, it's very delicate type of grape. The region that is there is uh, there's a similarity with Burgundy. So that's why they grow well there in a lot of people. If I was to do Pinot Noir in Rutherford, people would say, you're crazy. You're not. I mean, people wouldn't even, they might taste it, but they wouldn't. <laughs> what What do you think would happen? How do you think it would taste if you grew Pinot Noir in Rutherford? I would say there would, the flavors wouldn't be there. I mean, to me, uh, if you plant any, any Pinot Noir. I've tasted some of the Pinots from uh, north in the valley. Some people just did it. I remember back in the days and like, this is not a good grape to taste, to plant in this region. It doesn't taste, it doesn't taste good. So basically it was not the, the, the type. There's some, some guy that had a couple rows and they, he just put uh, the, um, the Pinot just because he wanted to have some Pinot. And so, you know, you may, you might want to graft it over. I mean, it's just, it's not right. It, it <laughs> He made some wine. I mean, he was this guy, Italian guy, was making some. Some he says, "I'm gonna have to make some Pinot." I said, "Really?" It's like, "Well, I know how to make wine." So he did it, and it was not the right combination. I said, yeah. "No." We ended up. Um, he ended up uh, grafting over to the Cabernet. Got it. So I want to kind of go back to your story as we're sipping on all of this. After you graduated from university, when did you decide that you wanted to come? back to the States. And why did you, instead of going into chemical engineering, how did you end up in that, you know, in wine? You <laughs> I, know, mean, back, I feel like you use it, right? I feel like you yeah, back in the uh, 83, when, I mean, um, I, I finished school in 83. When I was there, a group of friends went to, to this uh, shopping, shopping mall. And uh, I discovered an encyclopedia, one encyclopedia, and I said, Oh, yeah, there's a region. Yeah, there's California. And then I said, Napa. I said, Yeah, I bring some wine from there. And it said over there, it says, It said on that encyclopedia that Napa was becoming to be one of the lower, uh, the world best regions for wine. And like, Oh, yeah, my brothers are there. I bring some of that wine. But then I thought, Oh, I can make wine. Uh, it wouldn't be a problem. So I finished school that year. So I started working. And looking for a job and it wasn't i didn't want to go back too far out of the uh where where i grew up so in my state uh, there was not much work so i i found work on the coast which there is a few industries there i found a job uh and i stayed there for, for a few and then in 86 i said well, it's not worth it i mean i'm not getting paid much i'm only making money for my own and if i want to do a family in the, in the future this is not going to happen. So I decided to drive up here with my sister, brother-in-law, and a cousin of mine who were, there's two, two vehicles. We drove in, I remember back December 86, and we drove into the United States and I wanted to do wine because I was already, I was already thinking, yeah, I can make wine. I, I'm going to become a winemaker. So, Enrique, I love the confidence. You're like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's, I can make wine. I can make it happen. My brothers are in the fields. They know how to grow the grapes. They know how to work it. 
and I can make the wine. So that's what I thought when I was coming and said, I'm going to make wine. Unfortunately, I didn't make the wine. The I confidence didn't... of the youngest child. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't make wine right away. I had to work with Mr. Warren Winierski for seven months at Stacksley Wine Cellars. That was the first job that I got here in February 87, I mean, January 87. And I worked in the uh, landscape department. Good friend of mine, I mean, it's my friend, I saw him the other day at eating breakfast here at the Butter Queen, Jerry Berg. He was the guy in charge of the landscape department. He was in charge, He's a tough guy, nice guy for me. He was uh, always arguing with Mr. Warren Winiarski, the ex-owner of Staxley Wine Cellars. That's the, uh, uh, that was the winery that worked there, seven months. And But I was looking for my engineering job because at the cellar, they had no, there was no space at the cellar. There was no position available. There was no position in the lab because there was very little lab work there. So I kept looking for, for a job in the industry and I got an interview in October 2007, I mean, uh, 1987. And um, I got my first job as an engineer, as a chemist. And I was a position chemist in Benicia, Benicia, California. And we were working for the uh, for the chemical industry, for the refineries, for the um, chemical industry in general. But most there was a lot of refiners around, but we were doing a lot of refinery work. When the shutdowns, we were doing chemical treatment, chemical cleaning, chemical combinations to clean up their equipment. So that was part of it. And I got a job there and it was great. I liked it. Four years there. And I moved to another company and I got three or four, four, four different places that I worked. But then I was, I was traveling a lot in the last two, two companies. And, and I, I was in a, a relation already with the mother of my kids. And I, I decided to leave that and starting something of mine, which was the vineyard. And, and later on, we started with, uh, with that vineyard produce Sauvignon Blanc. In 2000, that's when I started that vineyard. So, so you were I, able to actually purchase some land that, ha- that I, had Sauvignon I, Blanc grapes on I it? Planned, and I planted Sauvignon Blanc up in Lake County. Oh, you planted it. Yes, I planted it. So that's when I, I decided to drop my engineering and start that, the, uh, the farming. And, and of course, uh, later on, when I was harvesting, produce some wine. I always liked the Pinot. I, mean, I always liked the Pinot Noir, and I wanted to start that. How the long pin- did it take from when you purchased, like from when you planted your first grapes for the for Sauvignon Blanc, you said, right? Yes. For how long did it take to get your first harvest from when you planted that? It took about, about basically, it was a lot of not knowing the region much. Because I, I, Lake County is colder, so I got a little missteps there. So the first, the first harvest was in 2000, 2005. <laughs> we started going back in the days. 2005, the first harvest. But then I sold everything that I was there, or most of it. It was, it was tough times to sell the, the grapes. So that was 2005. In 2006, I was able to crush it, most all of it, and uh, sell it to another winery. And then I produced... We crushed some of our, our own grapes as well, and uh, we kept it in uh, neutral barrels for bottling on 2007. That's when that first bottling happened. So it was 2006 grapes that bottled in 2007. So. Who was kind of your, your biggest mentor when you were starting to do all of this? Who you would kind of, because you say you had your brothers obviously knew how to grow grapes. Did they yes. help you with that? And then who else was like, you know, back, back in, in regards the, to making the wine, who making the wine, uh, 
I was already, when I got that piece of land, I was working the land and I was sell all the grapes. I asked someone we were working for at Eller's estate, the winemaker there was Rudy Zunima. Rudy Zunima is a wine, uh, very well known here in Napa. Rudy Zunima was working at Eller's estate. Eller's estate, he was a winemaker there. I said, hey, Rudy, I need help. Can you help me crush some grapes? Because I'm, I'm not going to be able to sell the grapes if if I don't if you don't help if you don't help me I might just leave them on the on the on the vine. So he helped me help me crush the grapes and help me to do the Sauvignon Blanc. That was the first harvest, 2006, and I did it. So that was uh, the first year. He did all the wines that you're drinking. It was consultant winemaker. He's a winemaker basically for for them for my wines. We've done it until 2018. Yeah, 2018. So it's a few years worth with him. He's um, he's a great guy. He's very outgoing, very nice as a person. And then as a winemaker, I like his style. So we're, we're continuing to do his style. We're bottling 16 and 17 Cabernet, as uh, I would say, next week. Oh, so wow. Oh, wow. It's not in bottle yet. The Cabernets. The Cabernets in uh, one Pinot and one Merlot. So, okay. Speaking of Merlot, <laughs> I have been telling people it's so funny. The other day, was it Friday? Wait, what day is it? Thursday. <laughs> I came home and I think I did like I posted a reel. I had gotten some bottles from Herencia del Valle and they included a Merlot in there. And so I posted it and I, in there I say, if you don't like Merlot or you think you don't like Merlot, like give it a chance. Merlot is very underrated, especially since that movie Sideways came I, out. Yes. And then so happened that later that night, Sideways was on TV. Wow. I got to watch it and actually appreciate it in a very different way than the very first time that I saw it. But I tell people, don't sleep on Merlot. Merlot is such a good one. It could be, you know, if you're going, if you're getting the right Merlot from the right place, <laughs> just like any wine, right? Yes, it's really good. So I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to ask you what your opinion on Merlot was. Oh yes, I have a 2015 Merlot. I got influenced by that and said I'm not going to call it Merlot. So I called it Red Wine 2015. And why? Because of the uh, the I was afraid of not getting acceptance from customers from club members which they love it they love it but it's only 90 only 90 percent so it's basically as a 90 percent is a, it's a merlot complete merlot with cabernet and they love it they love it it's uh, i was afraid of getting just a bad acceptance from customers but they like it it's so amazing how one movie and it wasn't like it was a huge movie but it was definitely like within people that saw it or were interested in wine or anything like that watched it and man, that just got into people's heads in regards to Merlot not being a good wine. And it, it really, really is. So basically, you ended up starting your own wine because you couldn't sell all of the grapes. Yes. So that kind of led you to start your own, like your own thing. And yeah, my own label and, uh, and started with a Pinot. I mean, I, I purchased some Pinot grapes and, um, and did my own Sauvignon Blanc and I'm still going with my own Sauvignon Blanc and my own Pinot. I have Elise Vineyard here in Napa, uh, Merlot, and some Elise uh, Cabernet in St. Helena. It's a small vineyards, but I do produce all of them. Your family that has, that grew up or that was working and 
harvesting and all of that. How do they feel about now their little brother has his own they, label? Back in the days, they were there. They thought I was crazy, crazy, um, leaving my engineering because when I was first before when I was coming here, they thought you're coming to the United States. You were you coming to work in the fields? So no, I'm not going to work in the fields. I'm going to do make some wine. I'm going to work as an engineer. I mean, I was telling the two things: engineer and making wine. So I ended up working as an engineer here, and like, oh wow! And then when I when I dropped that that job and started the vineyard producing grapes and then wine later on, they thought you're crazy. My my oldest brother he says he told me that why you're doing this? You have a good salary, a good position where you are. And you, are you crazy? And you're not. <laughs> so I remember someone else t- telling me that one of my cousins, that one of my cousins mentioned is that I give it, a, I give him two years and then he's going to drop it. He's going to go back to, to work as an engineer, which I never did. So I haven't, it's, it has been 22 years or more. I mean, it's going to be 23 years and, and I'm still working in the fields with, um, as a matter of fact, that's why I was late. 10 minutes late coming from uh, from Lake County, visiting another vineyard that I'm that I'm going to lease. And uh, we're working up there. And I had my little one with me, riding with me. He's asleep. <laughs> so <laughs> here in the minute, no. Um, but yeah, so those those are the things. And they think now, now, now that I'm, I would say, stable within the, the grape, uh, the business and stuff. They, they are they, they don't say much to me they talk to me like like always they've done it they don't say anything wrong about what i'm doing because they've seen the success that i that i got now so they are proud i think they don't they're not too expressive as, uh, as far as they like oh wow yeah he's a he's a prominent no but he, but I they, I think I, lo- I love everybody on my on my family I love my brothers and sisters and um my family, family's first. So, yeah. so where did the name Encanto Vineyards? I mean, we know what Encanto means. And yeah. it's so funny because now you have the movie, right? Encanto the movie. And so I'm sure you got a little, people, people got you, give you references to that. Well, but where did you come up with Encanto? You know, there's, there's a little street here where I live and then there was always saw Encanto. But, but basically what I was envisioning was Encanto, working the grapes, the whole phase of growing grapes and then converting, making it happen, making it into wine. So that was a miracle, enchantment, just a, a miracle out of out of grapes into wines. Not that a miracle, but it's a, what the wizard says. I mean, uh, which yeah, yes. Well, what kind of witch? Like a bruja? Or like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a, like a, you're 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 in enchanted enchanted yes. i mean basically the wine is enchanted from where it's coming from all the all the hens are taking uh, we're all working hard from uh, to grow the grapes but if you don't put that this this the love into it love to it and ch- making that transition into wine it's not going to happen if you don't make that if you don't grow the grapes and then you just convert it into wine uh, basically mm-hmm. that's what it is converting the grapes into wine so that's so you actually have, let me see, I'm going to go to your website really quick so I can. So right now you have your Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir available I think, in, the, in the the red wine blend, which is really the Merlot, right? Yes. Um, and everything else is pretty much, it looks like it's pretty much sold out. We have different, um, we have the okay, Sauvignon Blanc, the Pinot Noir, the red wine, 
Cabernet, and we have a uh, late is harvest. It, is it a late, dessert wine? Yes, a late okay. harvest. Yeah, it's a 2013 late harvest. I don't know how I, I mean, because it doesn't really say, but I was like looking at it and it looks like a, looks like another dessert wine. Besides Encanto Vineyards, what is one of your favorite wines? Like what is one of your favorite brands? What is one of your favorite wines? I work some of the uh, vineyards here, local vineyards. And one of my favorite ones is Schaefer. It's not a Mexican, it's not a uh, Latino, but the Latino winemaker. Love that. Elia Fernandez, Elias Fernandez, a good winemaker. And he's uh, he's worked there for, I don't know, 30, 40 years at Schaefer. And he makes a wonderful Cabernet, wonderful Syrah, Relentless, and the, the Chardonnays, of course. But that's one of the... I haven't one. had a good Syrah in a while. I might have to check it out, and especially yeah, with the Latino winemaker. Yeah, Elia Fernandez is a winemaker. His dad was from Michoacan, and his mom is, I think, is from Texas. Elias Fernandez, and they're big into this week is the uh, Napa auction, Napa Valley auction, and they are big into it. They were just on Instagram showing their wine tasting into their barrel wine tasting because they do the barrel auction. Uh, Schaefer is big on that. So that's one of the main great wines that I like. Mm, okay, I'm going to have to try it now for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Because there, there's so many, I mean, guy, that's people are always asking like what my favorite wine is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so hard because there's so many really good wines out there. And it depends on the day, right? It depends on what I'm feeling like. If I'm really, and all, you know, all of those things go, go into like, well, today, this might be my favorite wine. Tomorrow, it might be different yes. Yes. because yes. it just really depends on on all of the things. What has been your most valuable lesson working at other wineries before you started your own brand? Well, I learned learned a lot from the owners of those vineyards, from Gallo Martini, which is uh, one of the guys who worked there. He doesn't work there anymore. He's retiring. He works. Uh, he worked, started a different company or continue with a different company from martini which is now part of gallo mark over um i learned that the culture of working in the fields working in the vineyard you have to be there every day to be in charge or or in touch with the people and uh you need to be aware what's got what's what's coming what's happening for example if you're you know that's going to be a uh, rain or frost during frost season. I mean, you have to be there. Otherwise, or have, be be aware of it. And we're learning a lot from people that work there. I love their culture, their passion for to grow grapes, and I like that. Um, so I learned from from the people there. I learned the um, like, for example, Schaefer, Elias Fernandez, Elias. Elias I call him Elias. Well, He's, most uh, of our most of my listeners are Latinos, so you can say you the right Elias. way. <laughs> <laughs> we work for him and he's he's so picky about what we do there on the vineyards we have they have about 300 acres here in napa oh, wow. unfortunately unfortunately the the the, or the original owners sold just recently sold to another company uh and but but he's he's continuing to be the winemaker and but elias fernandez is so picky about his passion i mean for grapes growing grapes he's directing what to do in the vineyard like leaving one cluster only, clipping the shoulders or the wings, whatever we call it from the cluster. And that gives him the, uh, the, the steps to make good grapes and then make great wine. 
So I learned from that. So yeah, we're doing what he does, not 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 the same way, not not the same style, but we're making the, the same thing on our wines, on our grapes that we, we make wine from. So um I remember I was actually I went through, I actually stopped and I met with um some of the Mava members in 2020 when I drove up the coast up to port from San Diego to Portland. And so, but on my way back, there was that big fire that was happening. Oh, yeah. Did that affect you guys? Because I yeah. know some places it did, some places it didn't. And sometimes you just don't know what the taint is. Like if the, the grapes were tainted with the smoke until you develop it. So did were yeah. you able to harvest that season? Did that affect you? I did some, uh, like the Pinot Noir. My intentions are to, because it was, it was close to the um, to the bay, uh, didn't get as much smoke as the rest of the uh, Napa Valley, and that that was the only thing that I have, and I have a little bit of Syrah from Lake County that I this gentleman says, hey, take the grapes, work the work the vineyard, take the grapes. So I did a little bit of Syrah, a little bit of Pinot Noir, and we still have to taste it for to bottle it. Because I'm, I'm not convinced that, I mean, I'm convinced that there is not much smoke taint on it, but, but the rest, like the Cabernet from St. Helena that I have, it's not, it's not there. I mean, it's not going to, we're not going to do it. Yeah. So. I know I had to, some people asked me and I was like, oh no, I'm like 2020, if there's any good wine that came out of that area, it's going to be super expensive because I'm like, it really hit. A lot yeah. of vineyards. Well, um, it's like 2011. Back in 2011, it was a, a lot of green flavors. Supposedly, one commentator or expert or did a bad uh, review of 2011 Cabernet. They said it was a bad crop. It's like, well, they our Cabernet 2011 is it's enormous. I mean, it's nice, very, very nice uh, Cabernet, and people are like. Really? I will take all the Cabernet that you have in the tasting room right now. When, when some people have gone and say, hey, how many bottles do you have? How many you know, cases? And probably two cases. That's it on the, on the tasting room for that. 11 Cabernet. Because the green flavor, supposedly some people, and the rain that happened before and, and during harvest, they didn't like it. So there's there's <laughs> that specific same effect on 2020. The good wine that happened that year, it's going to be... <laughs> yeah, it's, going up oh yeah for sure i already knew that when that was happening and i was messaging them i'm like oh my gosh how is everything going and thankfully like they're none of their vineyards had, had burned down but they were like it's gonna totally affect everything because of all of the smoke and it was bad we stayed in me and my nephew stayed in san francisco for two days and one of those days we couldn't even be outside because we were all getting headaches from the smoke and that was in san francisco and we were in san francisco and it yes. was that thick and that like affecting us that much. So yeah, that's going to be interesting to see when that comes out. How long do you think, or when do you think, because obviously, especially reds, they still are developing while they're in the bottle and everything. What do you think for your wines? Because I'm all, obviously I'm only speaking for your wine or only asking about your wines, the peak of when the Cabernet peaks, when the Pinot Noir peaks, what do you think that is? Are both of these really good, like long-term, if people want to keep them in their in their cellar or in their wine area or whatever? What do you think that is? One of the examples that I have is 2011. 2011. 2011. I, mean, I would say it's still going up. And I would say the 2011, well, we have 2010. 2010, 11. 
2010 is different than 11. 2010 is at its peak right now. I mean, 12 years. You can leave it two more years, and then it will be good. No, no problem. But it's it's already there. I mean, it's you can see their the color is changing a little bit from being in the bottle for that long. The 11, it still has ways to go. So that's how I do it. How I say they did 14 and 15 Cabernet, for example. Everything I mean, everything that I produce is single vineyard. So Cabernet is single vineyard, Pinot, Merlot. Sauvignon Blanc, single vineyard. Everything is single vineyard. And so, like I said, we're going back to the Cabernet. Those wines are the young ones that are bottled in the bottle, 14, 15. They have, I don't know, 10, 15 years more to go. Oh, dang. Well, good thing I have a Coravin because I oh. didn't need to over, I didn't need to pop the cork. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's the good thing because you don't have, you don't have to open the bottle and they won't, yeah, they, the wine won't oxidize. It won't go bad if you don't drink the whole bottle, right? Oh <laughs> my gosh. It is seriously, it has saved, first of all, it has saved me so much money because I'm that type of person where if I drink wine and I really like it, I don't want to have, I just want to savor that. I want to savor that. And then, and then I don't want to drink the whole bottle. And I know that sounds weird, but if I really like it, I'm like, no, no, no. I want to save this. Yes. So I do, like, I just kind of go through the bottle very slowly. So that's yes, a really good job. Studies about that, that the, the chemical composition is, is intact, basically. And um, there's, we were talking yesterday with a friend of us that is, she's um, into basically the uh, smell and taste of different products for, for different industry, not wine industry. And they did a study with the Corbin. And she was telling me, I bet, says, no, we tasted wines that have been in the, with the Corvin for a year. Chemically speaking, same. They, 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 have, they haven't changed. So that's what, what she was talking. And it's like, I, I, I trust Corvin. I mean, they are going to layer that stays there. I mean, they won't let your wine go bad. So Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's awesome. So you do have a wine club, correct? So what? how yes. if people want to be part of the wine club, because I want to make sure we promote that, like what do you get as part of the wine club? I get a 15% club membership discount. And um, the first trip in this, is uh, within uh, six bottles is free here in the state. So we do offer that to become part of the wine club. And of course, we let we send an email and asking them if they want to do the if, if they want to switch switch wines so they can do that. So they get all those things. And do you and, guys have a tasting room as well? Yes, yes. Uh, matter of fact, uh, yeah, at uh, 1021 McKean Street, Street, Napa, downtown Napa, and we're next to Oxbow Market. So if you go, you also need to tell them that you heard about Encanto Wines through the wine and cheese man because we got to per- we got to support our peoples. <laughs> uh, yeah, just come on over and uh let me know about wine and cheese man. You get a 10% discount on your or you can do two or one in and uh, the tastings. There uh, see there you go. Enrique said it. <laughs> two for one. Yeah that the uh, two wine for cake. one. I know I really want to go hopefully I, I'm gonna go this year. I'm just trying to figure out one. I actually do want to go and participate in Harvest because I think I would just learn so much in regards to that because obviously, you know, I have my WSET one. I'm working on my, I'm a WSET two candidate. So I'm working on getting that. 
but I really want to like go out there and truly experience that process. So hopefully I'll be able to get out there this year, whether it's to participate in harvest or not, but at least go out there for a few days. We can start at four in the morning. No no problem. I mean, uh, look, I'll still look like this. I have no makeup. My hair is in a... (laughs) my hair in a little chungo i'm good (laughs) sometimes we start we start at 10 p.m or 9 9 p.m 10 p.m to start harvesting and work overnight sometimes we start at six in the morning and the other crew like schaefer for example started at four in the morning so come on over and then you can help us here (laughs) yeah i'll do it i will do it i'll do it for the (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if you people want to order Encanto One, it's on EncantoVineyards.com, correct? EncantoVineyards.com and send me an email because sometimes it, sometimes to order wine, sometimes it's not, doesn't, there's some glitch over there, some glitches over there on the website, but you can email me, EncantoWines at gmail.com and um, we'll with your needs uh, as far as Encanto Wines. Yes, so it's EncantoWines at gmail.com, EncantoVineyards.com, and on Instagram at EncantoVineyards. Yes. So make sure to follow Encanto Vineyards. If you guys purchase anything, tag them. If you go to their, tag them and tag me because I want to know that you guys know, right? But yes. also, if you make it to Napa and you go there, please make sure to to visit because, you know, there's and I say this all the time and I'm sure you guys received so many emails from me when I first started from doing the virtual wine tastings, which I've kind of come off of because now everybody's really going to places now, but yes. doing the Latine owned wine brand owned vineyard directory being the first one. I couldn't believe it. Seriously, when I was looking, I couldn't believe I had not found a directory of Latino owned wine brands based in the US. So I was like, you're going to start it. Are you going to (laughs) start? I did it. No, I did it. It's on my website. The very first Latino owned wine brand directory that for wine brands that are based in the US, because look, I found Mava and they've been so supportive. Enrique and Angelica have been so awesome and and everything. I've through Ahivoy, the Oregon winemakers, all of that. But there was nothing like I kept finding the same kind of 20 wine wine brands. Yes. And I was like, there has to be more than that. So I just started asking questions, started researching. And I was like, there's not a directory. Okay, well, I'll make one. So yeah, I made the very first directory of Latin owned wine brands based in the US. So great. And of course you guys are on there. Thanks and, you know, it's become kind of a passion of mine. And that's why, you know, every month I want to feature a different Latino wine brand because it's very important. There's, I'm sure you're aware of this, but I always try to like remind my audience there's over 11,000 wineries based in the US. Yes. Less than 100 are owned by the Latino community. Yet 92% of agricultural workers are within our community. So there's a huge disparity there. And if we spend our money, we need to spend our money you know, with not just within our community, but within other communities of color. But for me, my passion has really been you guys and making sure people know of all of these amazing wine brands who just have are producing some really rad wines. Um, thanks very much. Thank you much. Thank you much, Jessica. And yeah, we'll we'll keep keep producing quality wines because that's 
our, our passion and we want to make sure that's that's always so yes always well you guys make sure to follow them and and, and send a message if you have any questions or anything and then until next time mi gente thank you for listening to this episode of the wine and chisme podcast for more information on today's guest please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Remember, if you want to hear more wine and cheese, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.